When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Podcast. We bring you the news before it becomes news, as well as expert insight analysis on all the topics you are debating in football. It's Wednesday's podcast, of course. That means it's your questions answered. And uh, it's nice uh, to have, of course, Duncan back as he was on Monday uh, from his butterfly uh, sabbatical. Uh, and I think he's rested and ready to get stuck in to all the stuff that you're asking about. Um, and we're going to dive straight in, as uh, Kaiser Duck used to say, with Hassan Al-Habib who is at Al-Hassan, Al-Habib3, on Twitter. And he says, very cheerily, Duncan. Hi, Duncan, he says, um, exclamation mark. Liverpool have made a reported profit around £15 million this window through player sales. Is there any truth to the idea that this is an anticipation of a major player recruitment drive next summer to freshen up the squad? Thanks. Thoughts on that, Duncan? Obviously, we have been slightly surprised that after winning the Champions League, uh, Jurgen Klopp, didn't get the chance to freshen his squad for this season. Uh, I think that surprised Jurgen as well, as we've discussed before. Um, but I suppose if you're going to make a major spree, and Liverpool have probably been, we would agree, the best tactical spenders, and by that, identifying targets well in advance and making sure deals were in place um, of the last couple of seasons. This could be an interesting, uh, another interesting tactic from Liverpool in terms of the recruitment for next year. Yeah, I think you're right to identify that this is something that Jurgen Klopp didn't want to happen. And I think if you go back through um, the early months of the transfer window, you will see Jurgen Klopp on record talking about how the, the club needed to keep up with the other teams in Europe in terms of spending. And obviously that didn't happen. Um, I think the 50 million figure is exaggerated. Um, breakdown I'm seeing is including things like Danny Ings at £20 million. Obviously, that Danny Ings deal was done a year ago, um, a, a loan initially with a guaranteed buy in the, the following summer at £80 million plus £2 million of bonuses. So that would already have been in um Liverpool's financial calculations and they would have been able to take uh, loans against that money uh, coming from Southampton as and when necessary if they wanted to. Um, there's also uh, deals like uh, Rafael Camacho, which has been described by Liverpool as a £7 million deal um, according to Sporting, who actually signed the player. That was €5 million Euros guaranteed, €2 million Euros of performance-related bonuses. So, um, the numbers, I think, are a little bit on the, the high side. Um, they've obviously done well in, in shifting unwanted players out, um, not just this summer, the previous year. I think getting that fee for Danny Ings 
was a big success on their part. You've seen them take two million euros for Bobby Duncan um, from uh, Italy um, after the uh, the player forced his exit by um, very pointedly talking about how um, Liverpool's recruitment team had. Uh, um, failed to offer him a prospective path um, for progress within the squad and and um, how he'd had to force an exit uh, to progress his career. Um, they sold Ryan Kent to, uh, to Rangers for um, an initial six and a half million pounds, which is a huge transfer fee for um, a Scottish club to be paying for a, a younger player. So again, um, I think a good bit of uh, marketing work and negotiation work that's been done there. Um, I think also the concept that £50 million would be uh, you know, a significant basis on which to make a big splash in the coming market is a little bit problematic, given that £50 million doesn't really buy you very much um, in the, the current European transfer market, especially when you are a, a club of Liverpool's status um, and a club like Liverpool who have very markedly shifted their transfer policy away from looking for good value buys that will develop into better players, which is what happened when FSG first took over. And when this um, or elements of this current recruitment team were in place at the club to a policy of where do we need to improve? Um, this position is a weak point. Let's go out and get the very best player on the market um, who is uh, available at a price we can afford, um, which these days is a lot. You know, we're talking about uh, the top transfers going up to about 100 million euros, getting near to 100 million euros in terms of what Liverpool are prepared to spend on a, on a single deal um, and go and get them. And that's, you know, that's a very successful way to work. Liverpool have demonstrated it's a very successful way to work. Um, when you have that degree of resource, which they have, and you know, let's not forget Liverpool in the previous calendar year spent more than any other club in uh, Europe on transfer fee commitments as well as um, putting a huge amount of cash into improved contracts for players. So they, they've shifted to a model of this is the weak point. Let's carefully assess the market to find out who is who are the best options um, to uh, fix that weak point and work on making those deals happen. And I think you also see that they tend to take their players from a kind of second tier of European clubs um, like Roma, um, who they know if they offer enough money for a player, um, one, they will be able to go to that player and say, we can give you a better platform on which to play. We can take you to the Premier League. We can offer you Champions League football. We put you in a winning team. We can increase your salary massively. And they know that the clubs they're buying from will not turn down eventually very big transfer fees because their their um, their strategy requires them to sell when those kind of figures are offered to them. Um, and it's it's logical, it's coherent, it's working very well for them. Um, 
will they, they, they do this again next summer? Well, you have to say there's still areas of the squad that need improvement. Um, they're, you know, they're light in, at, uh, in terms of backups uh, in defence, particularly left back. Um, they, they could do, clearly do with a creative midfielder. Um, and they have needed that for a while. And then there's also this kind of feeling, um, informed feeling in football that Mohamed Salah might not stay at Liverpool for the entirety of his career. Um, if he has another season, like the last two seasons he's had, um, and one of the, the really big names of European football, the absolute elite clubs, if a Barcelona or a Real Madrid, um, possibly a Juventus come in and say, we want to sign this player and we are prepared to go to the, you know, the huge transfer fee that would be involved to take him, whether he would push for that move. Um, if he does, then obviously he would have to be replaced. Um, and if he does, maybe, maybe that's not something that Liverpool would be adverse to. Um, if the numbers were right for them, because if they take, if they can bank, you know, 150 million euros of profit um, on Salah's purchase from Roma and then subsequent sale to one of the top clubs, and they have a replacement lined up, um, knowing that they all, all they retain Firmino, knowing that they retain Sadio Mane. Um, and we've seen that uh, there are some issues between Mane and Salah um, at present uh, in terms of uh, who is going to be the top goal scorer in the team. Um, maybe that would be a strategic way to go forward and improve the, the team even further and that they could buy a replacement for Salah, retain a very good attack and, uh, and use the profit to... Um, fix two other areas of the team in, in the same window. Well, they obviously got lucky or unlucky, whichever way you want to look at it, Duncan, with regards to Alisson's injury. Uh, lucky in the sense that they landed a goalkeeper who could, you know, purely by chance because he was out of contract, um, who could deputise. So I think a, goal, a, a proper goalkeeping deputy would be a principal um, priority, possibly even in the January window, if they can sort that out. So that's something I think that Club will address um, sooner rather than later. I agree with you um, with regards to creative midfield. Um, every time I watch Liverpool play and see the interchange uh, and speed of the passing between the front three, I wonder how much better they could be if they had the option of passing the ball inside to a creative attacking midfielder who would then provide that killer pass um, rather than relying on Firmino Salah and Mane to pass the ball to each other which as we saw last week, isn't, weekend is not always going to be guaranteed. Um, speaking to a couple of people close to the Liverpool dressing room after that game, um, it was said to me that uh, the argument obviously was about the fact Salah didn't pass the ball to Manny, but that Manny has also become a little bit um, frustrated that uh, despite the fact he is every bit as good, if not better, in terms of goal scoring and assists as Salah is, that Salah always gets... The headlines, the headlines, and um, the star billing, and and Manny is a little bit um, like Neymar was uh, under Messi's shadow. Because I mean, a bit frustrated by that, given how much he contributes to the team. So yeah, I think Liverpool have will be employing their vast uh, army of uh, data analysts um, already uh, looking at different 
uh, targets who could come in and strengthen those positions. Um, and yeah, I think central defence is clearly somewhere where they are. They're going to be very short if they get an injury suspension. Um, and these are the kind of things that you know tend to topple your tilt at the title. If you want a little bit of alliteration in your uh, in your answer to your podcast. Um, I don't, honestly, I don't think they were um, lucky with Adrian. I think that's typical of, of Liverpool's recruitment and that they identif- they needed a backup goalkeeper and needed to improve their backup goalkeeper. Mignolet wanted to leave. They knew they could get a transfer fee for him um, and they identified a, a solid um, player with good Premier League experience that they could get um, without paying a transfer fee. And um, obviously he's not as good as Alisson, but uh, he's, he's pretty good. Um, and... I think I'd rather have him in goal than Mignolet as, as backup for this period. Um, the Mani Salah thing's fascinating because I, I think there's an additional element here in that they're both African players. So there, there's that competition to be perceived as the, the best player in Africa. Um, and as you say, Salah is the, is the one who gets the media attention and gets has more of the status um, and I can see why that would be a frustration to Manny. Um, I have some sympathy for Salah in that particular incident at the weekend in that the game was dead. Um, if you're not going to pass to uh, a better pay, uh, positioned teammate um, because you want to score the goal for yourself, for your own uh, personal ambition, which is to be top scorer in the Premier League, top scorer in Europe, then it's far better for you to do it at 3-0 or 2-0 when the game is over and you're just um, you're just trying to embellish your numbers. Um, but I also understand why Manny will be frustrated at, at um, you know breaking the sort of principle of if you you play as a team and if there if there is a a, a teammate who's as equally as competent a finisher as yourself in position. Um, to better position to score given the ball um, uh, you know, Liverpool obviously tried to play this one down uh, briefing that there's no problem between the two and that uh, Manny uh, accepted it and they're all friends again but um, we know everyone will be paying attention to it for the rest of the season and uh, and it's, a, it's an interesting additional factor in, in where Liverpool go this season Well also of course um, the almost uh, entirely predictable uh, statement was made, wasn't it? That I love to see them fight. It shows how much they care. I think that was that um, Jordan Henderson said that, I think, after the game. And uh, sorry, Klopp vaguely referred to a certain amount of pleasure from his part as well because of the competitiveness, et cetera, et cetera. In my experience, that's not how it actually works out in the dressing room because what you tend to find is that these things boil over on the training ground and one player knocks another one and then they both square up to each other and they have to be separated. And that's where the frustrations boil over much more, uh, where it's not in front of 40,000, 50,000 fans on the stadium. And usually these things uh, mount and tensions uh, take over uh, in a more private place and uh, and that's when problems become uh, rather bigger problems um, in saying that I think Manny and Salah are two players who over the course of uh, their Liverpool careers have always come across as um, very humble in the beginning you know, to start with um, very amenable and, and very personable as well so for them to get <clears throat> to the point if they're going to beat each other's throats will take something huge 
Um, so I'll be interested to see how Klopp handles that over the next uh, few weeks and months because uh, there's clearly is that degree of competition. And I think it's correct, Duncan, uh, going right back to um, <clears throat> the, the 20 years ago when the um, African Player of the Year uh, became an international event because uh, players were almost uh, always playing in big European clubs who won it, then there is a real kind of um, ambition amongst all African players playing in the big leagues to get that uh, very particular award because it means so much to them. Um, And also uh, Salah's won it twice now, I think. Um, And Manny's desperate to, uh, to catch up on that. So yeah, it's going to be an interesting few weeks between those two. As problems go, it's not a bad one to have, though, is it? <clears throat> no. To be Africa's best footballer and uh, the Premier League's top scorer in the same team. <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> Let's move to Tottenham Hotspur. Uh, an interesting summer for them. Record spend uh, in gross terms. Um, and also, uh, they obviously managed to keep Mauricio Pochettino at uh, the new Tottenham Stadium. Um, and Sammy, who's at Sammy1679, asks... If Pochettino has a bad season and finishes fifth, will he still be number one candidate for Madrid or United jobs um, if they are available? Personally, I think Allegri will be ahead of him for those jobs when he's back from his year off. Thoughts? Duncan, what are indeed those thoughts? Well, you're right to note that they they were the highest spenders in the Premier League, um, both gross and net on transfer fees. that's the kind of been a hidden highest spend and that Giovanni Lo Celso was taken on loan with an obligatory option to buy. But when you include that obligatory option to buy in the figures, that's what they come out as. And that's really what the effective spend was. And and yeah, I think Sammy asked a, a fair question because it's as much he has as much as all of it in place for him as is, he's ever had. The stadium, um, the naming rights lane is built. Um, there's no shift of ground during the season. The training uh, ground is built, uh, one of the best training grounds in the Premier League to work at. He has had this high spend on the team. He hasn't lost as many players as he was worried about losing. He still has Christian Eriksen, arguably, um his most important player from last season, or certainly one of one of two most important players in in the Tottenham squad. So the tools available to him are are very good. Um, it would be a big ask, particularly after the start uh, of the season, to see them competing for the Premier League title. But um, the competition to finish third is not. Hugely impressive. Um, Manchester United have spent significantly and improved their defensive capabilities significantly, at least in terms of putting money towards those areas of the team. But um, Pochettino has to back himself to to finish higher in the Premier League table than Solskjaer, um, a man who's on three wins in 16 competitive matches. Uh, Chelsea are handy, have been handicapped in the transfer market, albeit a handicap that they gladly accepted, um, allowing them to concentrate on younger players, but they have an inexperienced manager in charge. Um, Arsenal 
I think have spent well. Um, I think we're seeing the the improvements in their attack and in their mid- midfield already, but um, a lot riding on on players like Kieran Tierney and Hector Bellerin um, coming back into the team and strengthening what's an obviously weak defence. So really, the minimum Tottenham should be expecting is Champions League qualification this season. Um, they should be able to do that comfortably. Realistically, looking at where where their squad is and how much better it is than, than the um, three opponents for those remaining two qualification places, it should be able to do that comfortably, which then allows you to say, um, is it time for Tottenham to go and win a trophy? Um, this is a team that's kind of shied away from, to a certain extent, the minor competi- cup competitions in England, um, focusing on qualifying for the Champions League quite rightly and, and the stra- that strategy has been proved to be correct it's allowed Tottenham to get themselves into the position they're in now with that stadium built with a high quality squad in place and and very much seen as as the third force in English football which is really an impressive achievement by Daniel Levy Maurizio Pochettino and the players at the club over the last few seasons but now I think you, you can you can fairly argue that they have the the wiggle room available to them that they could put more of the resource into, in particular, the League Cup, which a lot of clubs are not interested in competing in. I mean, I think we'll see what happens, but the signs are that Liverpool are going to dump the League Cup again to concentrate on on League and and, uh, and Champions League. So you really. Manchester City will try and win it but you're going up against Manchester City to try and win that trophy so there is there is that chance there for Tottenham as a club and Maurizio Pochettino as a coach to put to bed the criticism that they haven't actually won anything and, and I think that's probably the more one of the more interesting tests for Pochettino this season is to see how he responds to that transfer windows all closed can stop complaining about the, the possibility he's going to lose one of his top players. Um, has got substantial reinforcements for his team. Now what can you deliver? What can you produce on the pitch? Um, how much can you strengthen the team's actual performances? And can you win a trophy? Um, which, you know, the fans... For all you hear the fans saying it's more important to be in the Champions League, it's more important to be to finish higher in the Premier League. Um, the trophy, the fact we haven't won a trophy under Pochettino isn't critical. You know that they would they would like to have that day of celebration and to to, to be able to say we have a trophy now, we've won one. Um, you know we've got a coach, the first coach since Juan de Ramos, to um, to bring us silverware. Then you got. The, the a calculation which Sammy you know presents to us is what degree of commitment does Pochettino have to this project? Um, we've we've heard him grumbling about it week after week after week. Um, he's had the opportunities to go elsewhere. He has been prevented from taking up those opportunities in the past. He knows that Real Madrid um, are not happy with their current coach. Uh, and I've tried to hire them previously. So the odds are he would still be a strong candidate for that job if he um, puts himself 
in a position where he he makes it clear to Florentino Perez that he will try and force his way out um, should the job be offered to him. And Manchester United, although Solskjaer has a great degree of support from the Glazers, um, great degree of support from his friends, uh, ex-teammates in the media, um, if these results carry on, a pressure will build there. And we know that that uh, Edward Ward tried to hire Maurizio Pochettino previously and that Pochettino will be the premier candidate from within the division um, to target as a replacement for Solskjaer if he needs one. So I think there's, there's lots of questions around Pochettino um, in terms of how, what level can he take it to with these better resources and to what extent he's committed to the Tottenham project with these better resources and will there be a, a point at which he'll waver and say actually I've done what I, I, it was possible for me to do here um, it's time to take on those offers at clubs with greater financial resources and of greater status than Tottenham um, to see where my career goes next Thanks for that question Sammy um, intriguing um, as it is in terms of what the future holds for Pochettino. Takes us very smoothly to our third question of the pod, which was from Jeremy Balkan, who's at JB Apex. And he asks, Duncan, and I have to say, this is a kind of a bit of Machiavellian conspiracy theory happening here. Uh, do you think Manchester United's board are effectively clearing the decks for a Pochettino or Sedan or Ancelotti? to come in next summer with a fresh slate, clean slate, I suppose, and build their new team. Ollie is clearly out of his depth and the actions of the board speak louder than their words. Well, obviously, there have been no words from the board, so anything is going to be louder than that. Um, I think we know that Solskjaer is very protected, Duncan. Uh, if they were to sack him, uh, for the results, even in the last 16 games, three wins, uh, as you've pointed out, um, then most managers of Manchester United would be sacked for that. So clearly, he has a degree of um, protection from the board and Edward Wood, which other managers would not have been afforded. Um, I suppose it comes down to the hard business stroke sports decisions, doesn't it? If, if he continues form like he has then clearly, whether they like him or not and whether they want to protect him or not, they will have to look at alternatives. Yeah, I agree. I don't think anything about um, the Ed Woodward uh, Glazers era of control of Manchester United has been particularly strategic from a sporting perspective. Um, I think they have reacted when they've been forced to react. David Moyes was not their appointment. That was Sir Alex Ferguson's um, emergency choice after um, his um, attempt to bring Mourinho to the club um, as his replacement fell through. Um, Ferguson at that point had the mandate to decide who his successor would be. And then he, you know, as David Moyes has told the story himself, he was out shopping with his wife and took a call um, from Ferguson asking him to come to his house and uh, did so and was offered the job the, the same day, um, which, which you know demonstrates 
the way in which that decision was was done in a hurry and it wasn't wasn't the planned option that Ferguson had had. Um, the Glazers were happy to get rid of Moyes when the opportunity presented itself. They w- then went to Van Gaal um, on the basis that his, um, his stock was high because of his achievements with the, the Netherlands national team. Um, any kind of due diligence and research into Van Gaal would have shown the problems that emerged when he, when he did become manager. They then jumped to Jose Mourinho because he was available and was the high status in the, in the same way as we've just been talking about Pochettino being the high status Premier League experience candidate. Mourinho was the high status Premier League experience candidate at the time, wanted the job. Um, they thought, you know, there was a board split. There was there was definite um People within the board who thought Pochettino was the way to go, but uh, Mourinho and his representative, George Mendes, persuaded Woodward that that was the better decision. Um, They took that one. But again, what you see there is reaction, reacting to the situation rather than uh, any long-term strategy. Um, Anyone who wants to argue that Solskjaer was a long-term strategic pick um, has to be insane. Uh, given the way that came around, um, that was a a clever uh, marketing uh, PR move in the sense that you got a uh, an interim appointment in who the fans would warm to because of his history with the club. Then had an exceptional uh, record breaking start to his period as Manchester United manager. Was given the job on a permanent basis, um, just as results were starting to turn. Um, and is now the, the man they are stuck with. And I, and I think um, you will see that c- continue down that line in the sense that they don't want to change Solskjaer. They like having that security blanket of a fan's hero, um, a, a, a manager whose results will be tolerated by some of the support, even though they are... Um, they have been the worst in his lifetime um, because of his, his history and because he, he, you know, he talks a good press conference game. Um, he talks, he, he's, he's very good at, at hitting the Manchester United trigger words. Um, he's also followed a, a strategy of, of uh, using academy players, which appeals to not just Manchester United fans, but fans of almost any club using younger players. So you've got that kind of hope for the future um, using British players, which is also uh, tends to be appealing to, to fans. But um I think as far as the Glazers are concerned, it is about maintaining their profit uh, stream from the club, keeping the supporters off their backs. Um, They've never been interested uh, primarily in success in the field. They've never targeted their principal resources towards um, establishing the club again as the the main that strongest football team in Europe. And now they have the, the task of, of, of rising up to where it was as the strongest football team in England. And they're a long way away from it. I don't see strategy in any of their, their recent decision-making. And, uh, and I think with Solskjaer, it's a case of you, you ride that horse for as long as you're allowed to ride it. Once it becomes um, seen that the position is, has to be changed, 
um, because results are so bad, the majority of the support won't put up with it anymore, then you go looking for a replacement. Um, I don't think this is a Machiavellian approach. I don't think they went into this summer saying, um, let Solskjaer do the dirty work and clear the, clear the decks um, and, and switch the team over and then we'll appoint a proper manager um, when it suits us to do that. It's just not the way the club has, has operated. It's just not the way the owners have operated. It's not the way Edward Woodward has operated. There's no, um, there's no evidence of any great intelligence in their sporting operations and separate that out from sporting from commercial because they have been extremely successful from a commercial perspective. They've been extremely successful in taking profits out of the club and putting it into the owner's um, bank accounts. They've done that in an intelligent um, or quite often in a disguised fashion. Um, but in a sporting sense, where is the evidence of, of any great uh, strategic intelligence in the last um, years of Ed Woodward's executive vice chairmanship and, and in general in the Glazers um, running a little football club? Maybe though, Duncan, they are ignorant or, or are allowing themselves to ignore one basic, very basic tenet of what it means to be one of those fans, one of the supporters who spends thousands on season ticket, uh, hundreds on merchandise, catering, etc., etc. That's all fine. As you said, the business side of it has grown and they can continue to take money out of it. Every fan wants to see their team win and they get upset when their team isn't winning. And if that losing streak or not winning trophy streak is prolonged, then the frustration gets more and more. And that's you know when you get movements like the Glazers Out movement, um, trying to mobilise other Manchester United fans into removing the owners from the club for that very reason. And I suppose I'm wondering if the great commercial success of United is based on not the 70,000 or so people who go to Old Trafford every week, but in actual fact that whatever it is, 120 million Facebook followers who all order their my United shirts online and watch the games uh, in far-flung places uh, in Southeast Asia, North America, etc., who aren't as committed as the hardcore Man United fans who do pay for their season tickets and have done so for over decades, etc., etc. Um, and they, their interest in the club is being associated with a major global brand, if you like, and that's what I'm saying is the, the fans elsewhere in the world. Whereas the hardcore are the ones who actually are becoming increasingly disenfranchised and frustrated at the lack of strategy that they see, the lack of results that they see, and that the future does not look like it's going to get any better. Yes, I mean, I think all of that is correct, but um, I don't think it, it gets us any further in terms of answering you know, Jeremy's question. I, I don't see the Glazers... Um, making that calculation at present. Um, you know, if, if that had been in the forefront of their thoughts when they had decided on the next permanent manager, they wouldn't have retained Solskjaer. Um, they would have changed to... this. Would, they had an opportunity this summer to move to um, an elite-level coach and to allow him to clear the decks. Uh, and, you know, if you... Really, realistically, if, you, if you're going to do that, 
if that's what you want to do and and there's a very good argument for them doing it and there there do need to be substantial changes to the football department all dimensions of the football department the director of football that they um, they briefed they were going to appoint but haven't appointed yet um, what better time to do it than at the end of the season if you're going to spend heavily is not the right word because they didn't spend heavily they spent relatively heavily they spent at a lesser level than Tottenham Hotspur um, but they put a, you know, a substantial amount of gross cash into their team uh, particularly the defence if you're going to do that do it with a manager who is capable of leading the team so make the change then if, if Max Allegri is the guy to take Manchester United forward and there's, you know, there's a sensible argument why Max Allegri could be the man to take Manchester United forward. And I'm sure Max Allegri would be interested in that job um, and interested in talking about that job. He wants to coach in England. Um, he wants to be in the Premier League. He wants to uh, win the Champions League. Um, if you go to Allegri and say, we think you're the man to head up our project and these are the tools we're going to put at your disposal, um, to achieve that, you can definitely sell that job to him and you could get him in place and you would have a better structure, um, a better manager to achieve that aim. They didn't do any of these things. Um, and I, I think that's what speaks loudest to, uh, to quote from, from uh, Jeremy's question. Um, those actions speak loudest from the Glazers and their actions are to retain a manager that um, they've seen in place and any um, impartial observer from with football experience, if you ask them, is a man who has spent most of his managerial career in the Norwegian league, the guy to take on probably the hand, hardest turnaround job in English football, maybe the hardest turnaround job in European football? The answer is obviously going to be no. One of the things I think is worth just recovering, if you like, in terms of the Glazers Woodward era um, after Ferguson, um, very quickly, uh, Moyes strangled out of the job by not being given um, the players he asked for or the cash to to spend. Um, Van Hal, uh, well, I think we all know the problems with Van Hal. We don't have to go into that. Mourinho. Um, was someone who fought very hard and was given assurances which were then never reconciled. Um, and ultimately that was going to be uh, a partnership which ended in divorce. And now Solskjaer is someone who is malleable, who can be controlled, who is manipulated through and through, as he himself says. Therefore, he's not going to do anything to upset or endanger his own job. Uh, certainly not going to upset the owners. Um, or Ed Woodward um, in press conference by complaining about his lot or anything else. He's just going to be good old happy, go lucky, Ole, and, um, you know, let's see if we can't get a trophy and then everyone's going to feel better. Um, so the connecting factor uh, between all of the, the managers post-Ferguson is um, the Glazers wanted more control of the football department and, and not less. And that's what they've got. That's what they've had. And when... The only one, the only manager who challenged them on this, Mourinho, they effectively did what they did to Moyes and that was they didn't give him the, the money or the targets that he'd asked for, knowing that eventually that would fail. He didn't do anything about unrest to the dressing room whereby someone could have stepped in. And there is, um, 
you know, there are precedents for this. Uh, remember when um, uh, Andrew Vias Boas was sacked by Chelsea, Roman Abramovich made a very rare appearance at the, at the, in the uh, training ground in Cobham and told players face to face that it was their fault a good man had lost his job and that if they did not improve their attitude, then some of them would be losing their jobs. Now, <clears throat> I doubt Woodward's got the authority, the character, the charisma. Um, and neither the Glazers either to go into the, uh, Carrington and say the same to Manchester United players, but they haven't even bothered, and that would be my point. So no one was giving the manager any support on the ground practically, nor were they giving it um, <clears throat> physically and in person by t- by intervening when people like Pogba, Sanchez were in rebellion against Jose Mourinho. So it's fairly clear what their um, ambition and optimum strategy is, and that is. Uh, we want to keep making money, and as long as we're doing that, it's great. And we're not going to give power to any guy who's head of the football department. Um, that's for us to decide. Can't argue with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why it's your questions answered. <laughs> <laughs> now, we've got a very intriguing one to round off today's podcast, Duncan, um, from Sadiq Islami. Uh, he is at Sadiq Islami. We always like those... Um, straightforward Twitter name, don't we, on the Transfer Window podcast. Uh, he's got three questions, but uh, I'm going to just stick to two because I think it's the, the, they're ones which, you know, I think supporters of football clubs do ask themselves and wonder when they're having their conversations pre-post-match, etc. Um, first of all, Sadiq asks, does being a captain and also being a goalkeeper make any sense? I think if you're, it depends, depends how your captain's set up in a team, um, how important he is to the operation of a team. And, you know, you see a lot of coaches these days who, well, you've just seen Pep Guardiola um, appointing Manchester City's captain by allowing his players to vote on who the captain should be, um, which I think is, is very intelligent um, in the sense that. Uh, you get the the player's choice, and you get that that um, you secure someone who'll be respected by his teammates. But it also indicates the importance of that role to Guardiola, uh, in that it's a position that he doesn't think is particularly important because he is essentially the captain on the touchline in terms of um, telling the team what to do. And and it's you know one probably probably the most prescriptive manager in football. In, in the sense of um, what he wants his players to do on the pitch, where he wants his players to be on the pitch, and and um, the degree of admonishment when they when they fail to be there. Um, if you have that traditional um, captain who is a manager on the field almost, then um, it does become important. And and obviously, for a goalkeeper to be that kind of manager um, stroke captain. It's much harder because they are, or you'd want them to be away from the play um, for most of the game. You want someone who can can go and speak to the players and you know make decisions. If there's a dispute over where, who should take an a, a, a attacking free kick near the opposition goal, um, you can't really have the goalkeeper goalkeeper come up and do it unless it's Hamish McAlpine um, who used to take the penalty kicks um, for a great Scottish team called Dundee United or um, uh, Rogerio Senni um, at San Paolo who I forget how many free kicks he scored for during his career but it was a huge number um, 
but I think I think in modern football it, it's it's more about having um, a character to lead the dressing room than it is to to be a voice um, on the pitch, and in that case, um, it can be a goalkeeper if that goalkeeper is the strongest character in the squad. And and you know we've seen in down hit, down through history that there've been a number of very successful. Um, goalkeeping captain, so um, not impossible. I think would be the would be the answer there. Well, Dino Zoff, I think, was probably one of the most famous Duncan um, World Cup yep. winner of Italy. Um, I agree with you about character. However, I think it's it's interesting just to reflect the fact that um, Duncan and I have spent you know, a lot of our lives traveling the world, covering football matches, and been very privileged to do that. And I'm sure both of us agree that the issue of who is captain is a, a very much an English disease. Um, in most other countries, certainly in European countries, the issue of captaincy is nowhere near as important as it is in England. Um, I think for the reason that one of the reasons that Duncan has um, made the example with Pep Guardiola and Manchester City. It's because basically Pep sees himself as having been the ultimate authority on that team. And therefore he probably doesn't want a dissenting voice on the pitch telling players to do something that he's not told them to do already. And so therefore, if you look at foreign coaches in the Premier League, you will find that they are slightly puzzled by the issue of captaincy. They're willing to learn um, and then make a decision based on the tradition of the role of the captain in English football. But for instance, Hugo Lloris is currently captain of, of Tottenham Hotspur under an Argentinian coach. And again, um, it's a status symbol more than it is a practical role, I think. Uh, and that's why, uh, I mean, it goes back to Bobby Moore captaining England to the World Cup. Um, Moore was seen as the iconic captain and Moore did have authority from Sir Alf Ramsey to make changes on the pitch if he felt that England weren't playing in a way that they, they should or as fluidly as they should. And that actually does give him more respect from his teammates because they realise that he has a big say. In recent years, probably the only or the best example of a powerful captain would be John Terry at Chelsea, where um, he was definitely the commandant in the dressing room and on the pitch. Um, but if you remember under Jose Mourinho's stewardship uh, during his two uh, spells at Chelsea, um, he always gave instructions from a substitute coming on to give to Terry. So effectively, Mourinho was the captain as well on the bench. Terry would then, of course, read his note, tear it up, throw it in the pitch, and then rearrange the positions of the players or what the patterns of play would be, etc., etc., under Mourinho's strict instruction. So I guess that's part of an answer as well as to your question. Um, very quickly, Duncan, uh, the second question from Sadiq is, uh, how difficult is, for, is it to coach a player who does not speak the same language as the team, i.e. obviously in this country, English? It's obviously harder to, to coach when you don't have um, the same language. Um, I've been reading one of Carlo Ancelotti's books recently and he, he very much emphasises the importance he places upon learning the language of uh, a new country when he moves there to manage um, and sort of saying that he expects that from any player who comes into the dressing room uh, as a kind of minimum level of commitment to uh, to the squad. Um, certainly, I mean, he, he does emphasise you're talking about European countries where it's it's viable to learn um, the basic levels of the of the language um, with a with a reasonable input of, of time. Um, 
know, I, I started uh, reporting on football in Japan and um, there, I would say half off the top of my head, about half the coaches of the, the top J-League teams or the, the, the first division of the J-League were foreign coaches. And um, none of those coaches uh, would be coaching in Japanese uh, because of the length of time it took to, to learn the language to a, a level where you could could use it um, effectively as a coach. So it was very standard for clubs to employ a translator um, for the coach um, who would spend all of his time with the coach um, at the training ground, but also away from the training ground if he needed them. And, and quite often they would hire specific translators for their foreign players um, so that they also would have personal translators working with them. Um, and I wouldn't say it wasn't a handicap, but it was such an accepted way of working over there. And the idea was that when you hired the foreign coach or foreign player, his skill level or experience level would be sufficiently higher than the domestic player that the disadvantage of him not speaking the language would be countered by the extra expertise. And certainly it, um, it didn't have an impact on results in the sense that you saw all the foreign coaches at the bottom of division and the, and the foreign players at the bottom of division, quite the contrary. So you, you, you can make it work, um, but it's, I think you, you very rarely see that in, um, in a major European league, particularly in English football. Um, and I think part of that is simply because English is the, you know, as close as we have to a global language. Um, it, it's the second language that most people will pick up. It's not a particularly hard language to learn um, at a, a functional level. Um, therefore, the expectation is that you, you get your language up to the level required quickly. Um, and um, I think it, it can be a block for individual players. But um, on the playing side, it's not so much of a block because there's there's not. I think a ma there are greater demands on a manager in terms of having to to use the subtleties of a language um, to deal with uh, relationships and politics within a club than there are on a player who ultimately probably only needs instruction on where he has to be on the pitch most of the time to to function in his job. And on that point, Duncan. Um Gary Neville's uh, spell at Valencia, his biggest regret uh, there, uh, obviously having lasted just five months uh, in the job, was that he couldn't. His Spanish simply wasn't good enough, despite having lessons every morning. He just couldn't get up to speed. And of course, Gary himself would say that communication skills are one of his strongest um, sets in terms of quality, and not being able to use that to instruct and motivate his players at Valencia gave me it was a handicap that he just could not overcome with regards to turning that team's results around so um, it, it works both ways uh, Sadiq in terms of both the player who doesn't speak the language and the coach of course who doesn't speak the language of his country that's it for today's Your Questions Answers but of course it wouldn't be Wednesday if it weren't for the infamous Dunkey Award and following on from the inaugural Bumper Graham Award for lamping a teammate uh, last week we've got a kind of 
slightly softer version, let's say, uh, for this week's donkey. It's, it's lamping by social media mainly, more than anything else. Uh, I'm sure many of you have been aware of the, the little bit of a row being had between uh, Newcastle United's former strike partnership of uh, Michael Owen and Alan Shearer. Um, well, uh, just f- for one day, just for you guys, we're getting the band back together, even though they're not speaking to each other except on Twitter. This will be the Newcastle United Strike Partnership Award for the most anodyne pundit. Now, of course, Owen and Shearer are big names in the punditry world and are also very highly paid for a th- uh, opinions. Some would say maybe uh, overly paid, given the anodyne nature of the said comments. Um, at this point, I would like to put uh, just to clarify that some of you will be stunned not to see names in here who you thought would be uh, and we just want to point out this is for anodyne i.e boring not being stupid um first nomination uh, let me just open the golden envelope there we go oh <laughs> remarkably it's alan shearer uh, a man who has been Punditing for many a year since his return from football uh, in various places, newspapers, uh, television channels, etc. Yet, um, if any of you uh, out there can uh, tell us, indeed repeat to us, anything interesting that he's actually said, then maybe he's in with less chance of getting the donkey. Uh, Second candidate, Mr Michael Owen. The band are back together. A man who seems to do no preparation whatsoever, just turns up in the studio and relies upon the fact that he's had a long and illustrious career in the game and therefore people should listen to him for that reason. And thirdly, and possibly my favourite, I've got a, a, a lot of kind of you know faith in this one, is Martin Keown. Um, a man who would like to be interesting, um, but uh, I'll just give you an example of one of his latest uh, comments uh, when co-commentating on uh, Southampton Manchester United last weekend. Uh, he said in his, and this was his summing up of uh, Daniel James's uh, stunning opener for United. He hit that and it stayed hit. Now, again, if any of uh, our lovely listeners out there can explain to me how you can hit that and it's staying hit, and somehow not becoming hit during the course of it, travelling towards the net, you know where to find us. Duncan, over to you to see who our winner is. Well, I'm going to disappoint Ian by ruling out Keown from the start, because I just, um, for all um, his credentials here, I don't think he can uh, can live with the, the company of uh, Mike Lowe and the <laughs> Shearer. Just doesn't make the grade and, and, and a dynasty. <laughs> yeah, very well said there. Um, <laughs> And, and then I think uh, I think Michael Owen has also ruled himself out with his uh, with his brilliant reply to Alan Shearer yesterday um, when Alan Shearer took uh, offence to him, which according to Michael Owen is something that has been going on um, for years um, since Owen uh, failed to play in the final game of Alan Shearer's um, esteemed managerial career. Um, with, Shearer's complaint is that Owen was uh, protecting himself from a potential injury which would cost him a new contract. Um, Owen insists that isn't actually the case. He made himself available to play. Um, There are other witnesses who agree with Shearer's account, but um, you have to uh, be amused by Michael Owen's reply, which, uh, which was... Not sure you're as loyal to Newcastle as you make out, mate. I distinctly remember you being inches away from signing for Liverpool after Sir Bobby Robson put you on the bench. You tried everything to get out. And remember, this is not only 
a person who was a teammate of Shearer's at international and club level. He also shared an agent at one point. So it's possibly not a surprise that Alan Shearer didn't respond to that on Twitter and went quiet. So I think you have to give uh, Owen credit for that, that put down uh, and say that this award will go to Alan Shearer, who, um, as you point out, it's very hard to recall anything you said of interest in his long and uh, very well-paid career as a pundit. Um, I think my my favourite memory of uh, Alan Shearer's uh, punditry was when he took great offence at um, Jermaine Genesis backing uh, of Danny Rose uh, a couple of seasons ago when Danny Rose made his um, his statements about Tottenham and uh, wanting to uh, to move elsewhere and make money in the the final move of his career um, to which. Alan Shearer took great offence in the BBC studio and said that no Tottenham player had the right to demand a pay rise until they'd won anything. Um, and uh, when it was pointed out to Shearer that um, he took quite a few pay rises in his career at Newcastle without actually winning anything, um, Shearer didn't really have a response to that one either. And, and I think that's pretty typical of, of Alan Shearer's um, under-trade career. And it's not very well thought out uh, it's not very interesting and therefore I think he wins this um, joint Shearer Michael Owen award for the most anodyne pundit in British football I think you made your case magnificently there Duncan um, I don't think anyone's going dis- to disagree with you on Shearer winning this week's donkey um, perhaps we'll write something with you on it for him and he might use at some point in his punditry career in the future. Little suggestion. And uh, so we, when we wrap that up and send it uh, to Newcastle, then uh, we'll make sure that, uh, yeah, there's something a little bit extra for uh, for Alan. Um, maybe a little golf anecdote or something like that. Maybe. I'm just thinking off the top of my head here. Uh, really enjoyed your company today. Uh, all your listeners as well. Thank you for your questions. Um, of course, if you want to continue the debate, and we love it when you do. Please just be in touch through the at Transfer Podcast uh, Twitter handle. Uh, Duncan is at, as always, at Duncan Castles. And I'm at the Hungarian uh, favourite meal, at Garbo SJ. And of course, if you like what you hear, please go on to iTunes and give us a five-star review. And of course, the audience gets bigger, things get more interesting for all of us. We'll be back on Friday uh, with uh, the new, all the news and more analysis uh, of uh, the, this weekend's football. Please join us then. Until now, we'll see you through the transfer window. Yeah.